All right, open up to page one. We're on page one. It's going to be a long morning. Um, we're in the book of Genesis, starting a new series. Uh, honestly, open up to the very first page and chapter of your Bible once you get past all the beginning notes and stuff, and we're going to get into that. Uh, but listen, announcement, public service announcement, uh, in case uh, I go crazy over the next month, just so you know, at the end of this month, I'm turning 40, Okay. I already warned my wife that, that something shiny might show up in the driveway. I don't know what's going to happen. But, and I know what you're thinking. I know 40. My goodness, he doesn't look a day over 45. I know. Um, but yeah, it's coming. And so at, in, in seasons of life where you're going to hit a big number, you're going through some sort of transition or whatever, it gets you reflecting. Um, and so you guys are going to be my counselors today. No, uh, but it gets you reflecting. It gets you thinking about where you've come from, like your life up until this point, like a little bit of your origins, what you've been through, what you've accomplished, what you haven't accomplished, maybe looking at regrets or things you wish you've done. It also gets you thinking about where you're at in life, about your current identity. Is this who I hoped I would be at this stage of life? And it also gets you thinking about the next season. If, if 40 is around middle age, what about the next four decades? What, what do I have to look forward to? It gets you thinking about your past, your identity, and your destiny. In other words, you're reflecting on the story of your life, where you've been, where you are, and where you're going. And as we enter into the story of Genesis, I want you to keep that in mind, the story of your life, but not just the story of your life, but the story of humanity, the story of our existence, our origins, our identity, and our destiny. Because as we jump into the book of Genesis, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about. So as you open up, basically, we're, we're doing this series in Genesis, uh, just focusing on Genesis 1 through 11. We're not going to get through the whole book in this series, just Genesis 1 through 11, which gets everything started. It has been called the first half of the Bible. Genesis 1 to 11, the first half of the Bible. You might say, well, isn't the first half the Old Testament, and then the second half is the New Testament? But no, the reason why Genesis 1 to 11 has been called the first half of the Bible is because every theme of Scripture gets started in there and gets launched from Genesis 1 to 11. Themes of, uh, of creation and, and who God is and the Trinity and the, the nature of being a human being and what happened to the world and what sin is and, and what God's plan for redemption is. It all gets launched out of these first few chapters in the Bible. And if you want to understand what Genesis 12 to Revelation 22 means, then you have to understand what Genesis 1 to 11 is talking about. And so that's what we want to get into and get back to understanding what the scripture is saying and launch us into the rest of God's word. So Genesis 1 to 11, as I said, is a reflection on the story of humanity. It reflects on our past. It reflects on our origins, where we've been so far. It tells us what, what's going on in our present moment, how we got here, and what our identity is now. What does it mean to be human? What's wrong with us? And why do human societies tend to become rotten at the core? But then it also tells us about our destiny. It tells us where we're going, what trajectory we are on, what is going to be the destiny of human beings. How will the problems of this world be solved? But in addition to telling the human story, it tells the story of God. Who is God? What's he doing? Does he care? 
Why is he interacting with humanity and what is his purpose in doing so? What's our relationship to him supposed to mean? And is he going to fix the problems we see around us? These are all incredibly important questions, questions of existence, questions of identity, questions that every human heart is longing for an answer to. And the story of Genesis begins to engage with them in profound ways. And the primary way that Genesis engages with these questions is is in the form of a story. Genesis tells us a story. It brings us on a journey of seeing our, 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 our past and our present and our future in the form of a story. And the reason it does this is because stories are so powerful to shape the human being, to shape our understanding and to shape our identity and our perspective and send us on the trajectory that is designed to create from us. When, when we receive data from the world around us, our brains are actually hardwired to translate that data into a story in order to make sense of that story. We assume that we interact with the world merely in logical ways. I see something, I experience something, I learn something, I think about it logically, I look at it objectively, and then I synthesize it into its category. But that's not how we work. Human brains are actually way less logical than we think. We're not very good at just taking disconnected facts and understanding them and putting them where they're supposed to be. What we do is we take any facts or data that we experience and we insert it into a story. And we will even make up stories to make things make sense. So for example, this happens sometimes when I'm preaching, okay? I'm not judging anybody, but this sometimes happens. I will sometimes see someone walk through the auditorium doors carrying a Starbucks cup and then come sit down. Okay? So what my brain instantly does is it tells a story of this person's morning. They slept in. They don't care enough about Jesus to set their alarm at a proper time. You know, and even on the way to church, they weren't in a hurry. They drove through Starbucks to get what they wanted to fill that, you know, that craving for caffeine. And worse yet, they didn't bring one for me. <laughs> And so my brain instantly will just tell a story. But what, what's happened, I've taken data and I've turned it into something, I've made something up. And often it's the worst possible version of the story. All I know is that someone walked through the doors with a cup of coffee. That's, all, that's the only facts that I know. But I turn it into a story. And that's because it's the way humans are wired to turn things into stories. When you look at every human culture in history, any cultures that have left uh, any information behind, they told stories, myths and legends, stories of origins and creation and tales of survival, stories of gods and heroes, stories of their history. And embedded in those stories are truths that reveal the purpose and values and theology about that society and how they see themselves as fitting into the world and how they're going to survive and have a life of meaning. And the Bible uses is the same strategy. It tells us a story, not just to give us facts, but to give us an identity, to reveal our purpose, to give us direction, to help us understand where we came from, where we're going, and who's this God who's guiding us along the way. And then when Jesus comes later, he comes as a storyteller. Instead of just telling disconnected facts about who God is and, and systematic theology and, and just saying God's kingdom uh, is this and that, he actually told stories to illustrate the truth that he was trying to convey to us. Because our minds work that way and we are shaped by the stories we hear, understand, and believe. 
And so Genesis 1 to 11 is the beginning of the story. Daryl Johnson calls this section of scripture the story of all stories. The story that makes sense of every other story. If there's a story of your life, or if there's a story of modern culture, or if there's a story of whatever, the Genesis story makes sense of it. It's the meta story that tells us why everything else is the way it is. But it's also a true story. It's the truth about where we came from, the truth about where we are, and the truth about our destiny. It might not be told in the way that we often are used to true stories being told, because it's not a news report, it's not a biography, it's not a memoir, it's ancient Jewish literature, which sometimes has some features that we're not used to and need a little bit of interpretation and a little bit of help understanding what's going on, and I'll do my best along the way to help out with that as well. But here's the big problem we're trying to solve. We have lost touch with the story that makes sense of every other story. We've lost touch with the true story of who we are, where we came from, and where we're going. And when, what happens when this story isn't passed on, when it's not believed, when it's not understood, when it's not lived out, is we will live out a different story. And there are plenty of other options out there. There are plenty of stories being told to, to us about where you came from, what your identity is supposed to be, and what your ultimate destiny is. And when the story of all stories has not been passed on and believed and understood, people will grab on to any other story. I remember when I took uh, a philosophy class in university, and it was a philosophy of religion class, and the whole class was the debate of whether or not God exists. And the pr professor was an atheist, and in the end, his conclusion in front of everybody in the last lecture, he said, I've concluded that God doesn't exist, and what that means is I need to decide what the meaning of my life will be. So I need to tell my own story. I need to make up a story, in other words, in order to say that my life has meaning. Well, that is a false story. And if everyone's just making up stories about the meaning of life, no wonder everyone's just floating, and especially the younger generation is disoriented and, and misunderstanding their identity, and, and anxiety is high, and, and all the struggles that we're seeing in the world, because the story has not been passed on and believed and built as a foundation for our lives. So in this series, I want to help us recover the story of all stories, the one that makes sense of every other story, to help you and I make sense of what on earth are we doing here and what is God doing in the process. Like all the best stories, it starts with a great opening line, right? It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Once upon a time, a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> There's a lot of great stories that start with great lines, and this one is no different. The story of all stories begins like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. This is really all we have time for this morning. We're going two verses at a time through Genesis 1 to 11. We're going to be here for about six years, okay? <laughs> no, we won't, but just this morning because I wanted to just build a foundation. But what's amazing, not only is this a great opening line, the first two verses of the story, but it actually tells the whole story in itself. 
Now, just so you know, when you read the Bible, especially like Genesis and through the first five books of the Bible, it's all connected. And what you're supposed to do when you read the Bible, you don't just read it in a linear way. You don't just read through it and then say, I'm done. But you actually read through and then you come back and you read through and you come back and you read through because it's all connected and it's got these hyperlinks that are supposed to help you jump back and forth to build meaning as the story goes along. So as you read these first two verses for the first time, you don't see it. But when you move forward and then come back to these first few verses, you see all the meaning that's packed into this. And I'm just going to give you a little bit of a taste of what I'm talking about this morning. Um, let me do some, some explanations, uh, and along the way also tell you what Genesis 1 is not trying to say, because that's important too. We've missed the point on it a lot. And then at the end, I want to bring some hopefully very practical pastoral comments as we close the service in a time of prayer. So it starts, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. These first four words of the Bible introduce us to the reality that we are presented with a story. What we're living in had a beginning. The universe itself is not eternal. It began, it had a cause, and that cause was God, who is eternal, who did not begin. God was there in the beginning. He got everything going. He is that cause in the beginning, God. But when a story starts with in the beginning, it comes with other assumptions. It comes with the assumption that there's going to be a middle, and it comes with the assumption that there's going to be an end. The beginning is about origins. It's our origin story, but it moves into the middle, which is our current state, our identity. You see, when you know where you came from, you learn about who you are. It really matters where you came from. Your story matters about who you have become. And that's why we need to understand this story. You know, the month of February uh, was Black History Month. And we as a church completely failed in recognizing that, and I'm sorry. Um, but it's so relevant because one of the reasons Black History Month is, is celebrated is because it's a, good, it's a reminder for our black brothers and sisters their story. How they have contributed in history to, to science and art and faith and so many different aspects of culture because it helps our black brothers and sisters understand their current identity and value and meaning and purpose in the world. Understanding your story, understanding where you came from helps you know who you are. And when we lose our stories, we lose sight of the story. We lose sight of our identity and our purpose in this world. Now think about why and when Genesis was written. Why and when Genesis was written. Moses the Moses was the primary author of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We call those first five books of the Bible the Pentateuch, or in Hebrew, the Torah, which just means teaching. And, and when Moses began writing this, it was during the time when the Hebrews were wandering in the wilderness. They had left Egypt. They had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And here they are wandering in the wilderness before they enter into the promised land. They're in the middle of their story. Their origin story had been slavery in Egypt. Here they are in the middle of their story and their destiny was the promised land. But they're in the middle of this wondering and wandering and asking Moses, who are we? What are we doing? Where are we going? Now think about it. They had been slaves for 400 years, which means that the current generation that was wandering and in engaging with Moses, that's all they knew. They were born into slavery. 
They were told your origin is slavery. They were told your identity is slave and your destiny will be to continue to be a slave forever to Egypt, which was the most powerful country in the world. They had the most powerful so-called gods in the world and there was no hope for them. But here they were rescued from this slavery, wandering in the wilderness, and they were wondering, what on earth are we doing here? Now think of the questions that they would have had and think of the questions they wouldn't have had. They would not have had these questions. Okay, you ready? Moses, how exactly did God create the world? Moses, uh, were birds created first or fish? Moses, tell us exactly how long it took for God to create the universe. Nobody cared about those questions. Those weren't the questions they were asking, and those aren't the questions Genesis is trying to answer. But we often impose those questions on Genesis. We impose questions that Genesis is not trying to answer on Genesis, and then we completely miss the point and miss out on the amazing things Genesis is trying to say. What questions might people have had as they wandered in the wilderness? Moses, who are we? What is our identity? We were, we were slaves. We knew nothing but slavery. And we have some of these loose stories that we kind of remember, but, but it was beaten out of us for generations. Where did we come from? You told us that God sent you to rescue us, this God you call Yahweh. Who is he? Why does he care about us? And where is he taking us? This is the story that Genesis is trying to tell to the people who are wandering in the wilderness. I remember reviewing some Bible study material um, in, in a, a previous church and a member of our church wanted to teach this material and it was like a DVD study. Um, and the, the study had the, the name, uh, Learn the Bible. It was part of the name of the study. So, okay, we're going to learn the Bible. And the idea was a survey of all the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. And so I was reviewing it and I put in the first DVD, Genesis chapter one. And the very first thing the teacher on the DVD started to talk about was physics and astronomy. And I remember thinking, we're not learning the Bible. Because that's not what Genesis one is about. It's not about physics and astronomy. This isn't a scientific text. This isn't a philosophical text. This is the story of God and humanity. It's a story of where we came from, who we are, and where we are going. It tells us our origins, our identity, and our destiny. So let me just disabuse you of a notion. If you're here looking for an apologetic for a certain uh, view of the origins of the universe and scientifically how all this stuff, you're not going to get it in this series because that's not what this is about. I'm not here to give more uh, argument fodder for your next discussion with a Darwinian evolutionist. It's not what it's about. We've abused the text by using it solely for that purpose. It's missed the point and it's missed out on the amazing things that Genesis has to say to us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created the heavens and the earth. Literally, it says God created the sky and the land, which basically means God created everything. Everything up there, he created it. Everything down here, he created it. He created the sky and he created the land. 
The process by which he created it, it doesn't necessarily get into that. The time it took, the shape, the laws of physics, we can talk about those in other contexts, but the Bible wants to talk, something, talk about something much more important. The land here can refer uh, generally to the earth, but it also refers specifically to the land of promise, the land of Palestine where God eventually took his people to give them an identity and shape them as a nation to be a light to the nations. So when you, again, when you go forward in the text and you see how the word land is used, it's talking about this place where God was going to bring his people. So when it's talking about land, it's talking not just generally about land, it's talking about a place that will be filled with people a place that's for people, a place for people to live and grow and create societies and build cities and flourish under God's care. And the land is also used in stories that talk about decreation. Like when the land is covered again by waters during Noah's flood. Or in Jeremiah 4, after the fall of Jerusalem, when Jeremiah is lamenting and looking at the devastation and saying that it's now become again a place of emptiness and formlessness, like it was before God filled it and formed it in Genesis 1. But the land God created was a place for people to live, but it can become deformed when the people who live there start to live in sin and violence decreation occurs. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the sky and the land, and it continues. The earth or the land was formless, and it was empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. This formlessness and emptiness, we got this scene of primordial creation. There, there was this earth here, and the heavens, and the stars, and the galaxies, and everything was there, but the, the earth was not a habitable place. The earth was not a place for creatures or plants or wildlife to live. It, it, was, it was inhabitable. God had to do something first. Formless, didn't have shape. It was empty. There was, there was nothing alive living in it. And then it talked about darkness. The word darkness in scripture can represent evil. It can also represent ignorance. So there's just this, this chaotic mess going on in the world. Not a place for humans to live. And next week, as we go through the six days of creation, we'll talk about how God fills and forms the empty, formless world. But then the last line for today says this. We're going to hang out here for a while. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. This is such a great line. It's so pregnant with, with, with power and so pregnant with meaning. And when you, when you read through this, and maybe if you do want any sort of linear account of what's going on in here, I, I, think, I think what we're talking about is when God created in the beginning, he created the world, he created the galaxies, he created the stars and the sun and the moon, and created all those things, but there was not yet life on the planet. But in that context, in that space where there was no life yet, the spirit of God was near. And God began to do a creative work in the land, maybe, maybe specifically in that land of Palestine that he prepared for Adam and Eve. And if you remember, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but one of Adam's mandates was to go with Eve as his helper and to go into all the world and bring the same order to the rest of the world that God created in the garden. That was part of their jobs as image bearers of God. And so God is beginning to prepare this land. But before that, in the chaos and the primordial creation without life, there's God's spirit. God's spirit is there. And there's a play on words because the word spirit is the same word in Hebrew for wind. 
The mighty wind of God was hovering over the waters. And the same word for spirit and wind is also the spirit or the word for breath. The breath of God, or even the voice of God, was hovering over the waters. The world that was lifeless, the world that was just a ball of mud, God begins to breathe on it. And it foreshadows even Genesis chapter 2, where out of the mud and clay, God forms the human being and breathes life into him. Things that are just mud and chaos and dark and ignorant or even evil. Without God's presence, there's nothing there. But as soon as God comes and brings life and breath and his wind and power, something begins to happen. Next week, as we see verse 3, God's breath begins to breathe. His voice begins to speak and things start to take shape. Formlessness and emptiness becomes formed and full. What's disordered becomes ordered. What's in chaos becomes at peace. What's dark becomes life. What's dead, be- dead becomes alive. God's spirit, his breath, his voice, his w- the wind of his presence was hovering near, and anything can happen in that moment. When God's spirit is near, anything is possible. Do you know that in your own life, God doesn't need good ingredients in order to do something good? Like God isn't like a baker who needs flour and eggs and oil in order to actually start baking. God just needs to be present and begin to breathe. And something good happens. You don't need to come to God and say, here, I've I've brought you some things that you can work with. God says, I don't need any of your things. I just, just come with the mess. I do really well with the mess. I do really well when something that's just a ball of mud, just full of chaos and darkness and ignorance and mess, that's all I need for you to submit to my voice, to my word, to my presence in your life, and amazing things can happen when God begins to speak in that situation. This is the message the Hebrew people needed to hear. This is what they needed to hear out of their mess, out of their chaos, out of their darkness and ignorance. God, his spirit was hovering near, ready to create something. They didn't need to bring anything to him. They were just a a rabble of former slaves who had nothing to offer. But God said, all I need to do is speak over you and I can create you into something. That's the message they needed to hear. Without getting too deep into the details, you can save it for your Bible college class. There's a lot of connections here to some of the other ancient um, uh, creation stories like the Babylonians and Mesopotamians and Persians and other stories where uh, they had stories of creation, but there was always great battles between forces and gods and one god killing another god or having to defeat you know, uh, chaotic beasts out of the waters and all this stuff. But in this creation story, there's a very specific uh, uh, intentional message to say none of those stories are the true story and this God is different because he doesn't have to do battle he just speaks and everything obeys he just speaks and the chaos becomes calm Jeremiah 10 11 
tells us, say this to those who worship other gods. Your so-called gods who did not make the heavens and earth will vanish from the earth and from under the heavens. Psalm 96.5 says the gods of other nations are mere idols, but the Lord made the heavens. There's a very intentional message that God is the superior God. Any other so-called God is so inferior and will disappear from the face of the earth. And this God who breathes life into existence is the one who gives us meaning. He doesn't have to fight for control, assert himself. He just speaks. And it's the same today. Our lives can become formless and empty. Our cultures can become formless and empty. Our world can feel like it's getting into that chaotic mess where there's just nothing but the darkness of the waters of primordial creation covering it. And we have no power to fix those problems ourselves. But the Spirit of God is nearby. The Spirit of God is hovering over those chaotic waters. God's breath is ready to breathe. His powerful wind is ready to blow. Sometimes we're trying to put all the pieces of our lives back together on our own, but it seems like an impossible task. But what we really need is the presence and the voice of God. What we really need is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. We need the wind of God's Spirit to begin to blow on our lives. You see, in these first two lines of the Bible, I told you, it it tells the whole story. And the rest of the Bible fills in the details. God was already there at the beginning. Everything finds its source in him. He created a land for us to live in, to give us an identity. But the presence of the Spirit hovering over the formlessness and emptiness of primordial creation is not just a thing of the past. It was a foreshadowing of humanity's future. It was a foreshadowing of all the times where God's people got into such a mess. They got into the darkness of sin and death. They got into the darkness and sin of violence and rebellion from God that their actions themselves created a disordering of God's good ordered creation. Their actions themselves led to things like the flood where when God created, he actually separated water from land, but in the flood, it all came crashing back again because of the sin of humanity as creation was deformed. But God remains hovering over those waters of darkness. When God's people were in a place of chaos and disorder, God was still there. God was there over the flood waters in in Noah's flood. He was there during the famine in the time of Joseph when the land was empty and full of death. He was there in slavery in Egypt when the people lacked identity. He was there wandering when the people were wandering in the empty waste of the wilderness for 40 years. He was there during the exile of Babylon when they were stolen away from their land. He was there during the occupation of the Romans and in the darkest, most formless times of all, in the times of slavery and sin and death, God was there. When the Hebrew people had escaped Egypt and they were with Moses and they were fleeing and Pharaoh's army was chasing them and they were, they were pushed up against the waters of the Red Sea with the army coming to smash against them, what are we going to do? What happened in that moment on the shores of the waters? The wind of the Spirit began to blow and the waters were pushed, pushed aside and land came out and the Spirit walked in liberty and the people walked in liberty. That's what the Holy Spirit does. 
In the times of darkness and chaos and disorder, God's spirit comes to rescue. His spirit is hovering over the land. Even today, it's the prophecy of Isaiah who said, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. It even connects to Jesus's declaration, the kingdom of God is near. God is near. The spirit is once again hovering in power over his people who are in darkness. And today, all we need to do is open our eyes and recognize his presence. We need to enter into that which he is doing in our day because the story continues to unfold. The story of God working in history of bringing order from disorder, bringing light into darkness continues to unfold in our day. But I want you to see something because sometimes even in this, we get a little off key. Because we love, I mean, we're, we're in a Pentecostal church. We're in a Pentecostal, we love the presence of the Spirit, right? Like we crave the presence of the Spirit. We need, we rightly desire and seek the presence of the Spirit. But the ministry of the Spirit is not just a ministry of presence, is it? The ministry of the Spirit is a ministry of transformation, the ministry of the Spirit is not just a ministry of having worship services where we get to, you know, have some fun and some tingly feelings and whatever happens there, and then we go home and we just live our same lives. That's a move of man, not a move of the Spirit. The ministry of the Spirit is a ministry of transformation. So when, when we've got this buzz of revival in the air, and it's been cool to just hear about what's going down on down in Asbury and, and other stuff that's kind of you know, going. Is this a move of God that's going to spread? I don't know. Like, it's, it's cool to see what's happening, especially with uh, Gen Z, young people leading it and experiencing God's presence. It's amazing. But the real test of revival is not whether or not we can hold 24-7 worship, worship services. The real test of revival is whether it's followed by renewal in God's spirit whether it's followed by holiness and righteousness and transform lives and actual change in the world. So I want to seek the presence of the Spirit. I want to experience God's Spirit as much as anybody. But more than that, I want to be transformed by the Spirit. I want to see the church come alive by God's Spirit. I want to see lives changed out in the world by the Spirit, at home, in our city, around the world. The ministry of the Spirit is not just a ministry of presence, but of transformation. When you hit verse 3, what happens when the Spirit begins to move, when God's breath begins to be breathed on creation? Things change. Disorder becomes order. A rhythm is built into creation. Day and night, light and dark. Life begins to flourish and fruit begins to be born. The fruitfulness of our life is the true test of whether the Spirit has impacted us or not. It's no coincidence that when John introduces his gospel, John chapter one, verse one, starts with the same three words as Genesis, in the beginning. Because what John is announcing is that in the ministry of, the, of Christ and in the subsequent outpouring of his spirit, what is God doing? He's doing a new creative act in the world. That's why in, in, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, we're told if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. 
When you are in Christ, God has started an act of creation in your life. His spirit is given to you so that you can be transformed and reordered. Chaos can become order. Dark can become light. So your life can reflect a new work of God in the world. In the beginning. See, we're invited into the story. And when you enter into the story of God, when you enter into the story of Jesus, you get a new origin story. It doesn't matter what your previous origin story was. It doesn't matter if you were in slavery. It doesn't matter if you were in death. It doesn't matter if you were addicted. It doesn't matter what the previous things happened in your life. You get a new origin story. You are in Christ now. Your life has a new identity and a new purpose and a new meaning today. And you have a new destiny and eternal life with him because you are a new creation in Christ. That's the story we're invited into. Every single person, no matter where you came from, God can do a new creative act to undo all the death and destruction that was done to you or by you in your past. You're a new creation in Christ. Bow your heads and pray with me, please, as the band comes. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Join me just in calling out to God. Praise you, God. Praise you, God. Jesus. Jesus, we need you. Jesus, we need you. God, it's so easy to look around at the world around us and be full of anxiety and concern over the way things are going, concern over violence and war and death, concern over uh, the values that are being represented and, and, and put forward, concern over degradation of certain things, concern over... Uh, um, just what's happening, Lord, it, it, can be, it can be anxiety inducing, it can, it can create fear in us, but Lord, I pray that by your spirit and by your presence, you would calm our fears, calm our anxiety, give us peace, Lord God, to know that even in the chaos, even in the mess, even in the darkness, even in the evil, Lord God, you are near. And by one word from your, your mouth, one breath from your lungs, Lord God, you can begin a new creative act. Thank you that in Christ, we are a new creation. We have entered into a brand new story with a new origin, a new identity, and a new destiny. And I pray, Lord God, that if there's anyone here today who has not stepped into that story, who has not received the power and the work of the Son of God in their lives, who came and lived and died on the cross for their sins and rose again for eternal life and is preparing a place for us in heaven. God, I pray today would be the day that there is repentance and transformation and grace poured out on that life and that their life would begin in this, this new life of new creation in Christ. And for each of us, Lord God, it's so easy for us to walk away, get discouraged, to get stuck in sin again, Lord, but you're always there to rescue. So we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would rescue by your spirit over the chaos of our lives, over the darkness of sin, over the pain and difficulty, Lord. Come by your spirit to bring new life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Would you stand with us? The prayer team's gonna come. We just have a few minutes left. But if you want prayer today, if God has put anything in your heart, if you're struggling with anything, if you have any sort of need, if you want to respond in any way to what was said today or what you experienced today, please come. There are men and women here who would love to minister to you and pray with you. The rest of us, let's just lift up our voices and praise this God who gives us breath. In the darkness, he brings light into our lives. Thank him for what he has done.